This morning we are going to do something a little bit different. We are going to move away from our study in Acts, and I'm going to speak to you kind of heart to heart as your pastor and share with you a few things that I feel the Lord has laid on my heart with respect to you and this church. I've entitled my discourse to you, Seven Reasons for Church Membership. I want to talk with you this morning a bit about what the Bible has to say about being involved in a church. We've been studying Acts. We've gone on a historical journey that's been very fascinating with respect to the life of the New Testament church. And we've learned many principles about Christian living, and we are going to learn more as we proceed ahead things that are applicable to our life in, a ministry, in ministry, but especially matters pertaining to life in the church. And I know that from time to time, certain questions arise within the church, and it's good to be able to set aside a normal expository process and deal with a particular topic, and I want to do that this morning. Some have asked the question, especially some new families within the church, what does the church say, or what does the Bible say, about church membership? Does the Bible teach that Christians should be members of a church, of a local church? Some will say, since I'm already a part of the universal church when I become a Christian, by virtue of the fact that I have confessed Jesus as my Savior, does God expect me to also somehow join in some formal way a local church? I don't see any verse in the Bible that tells us that. So the question before us this morning is simply this. Does God expect us to be a member of a local church whereby we formally and publicly commit ourselves to faithful, sacrificial service, and even accountability to that local assembly? And the short answer is absolutely. In fact, the Bible knows no other kind of a Christian, as we will see. And I would ask you from the outset, why wouldn't you want to make that kind of commitment? Now, I can appreciate some of the confusion on the part of different individuals, given the spirit of our age and our culture. Frankly, the vast majority of even evangelical Christians are biblically illiterate about many doctrinal truths in the word, especially as they relate to the church. Many people are ignorant of what the Bible says about what we are supposed to really do as Christians, much less some of the more profound doctrines of the word of God. And as a result, many Christians are resentful of truth that challenges their lifestyle. Often we have, and sometimes I've seen it even in this church, Christians that are unteachable, Christians that are unaccountable, Christians that resent authority in their life. Many prefer to be independent, to be kind of a, a free spirit. They prefer to have total anonymity. That's why many people love big churches where they can kind of get lost in the crowd, you know. Don't place any expectations on me and don't get too close. I don't like that. And you see how it works. They will always fight for the back seats and they'll come in late and leave early and that type of thing. But many Christians really don't want to get involved in a church, to get actively committed to a local church. That's kind of foreign to the way our culture thinks these days. But it's not foreign to what the Bible teaches. The idea of being faithfully involved in the life of a church is simply not a priority for many Christians. For a lot of Christians, it's just another option. You can kind of take it or leave it. In fact, the mindset today is that of religious consumerism. The church is seen by many kind of like we would view a restaurant. The way we would view a restaurant is simply this. We kind of come whenever we feel like it, whenever we're hungry for whatever that restaurant has to offer. And so we go to different restaurants depending upon what mood we're in. That's how a lot of people treat the church. 
And sometimes, of course, you don't go at all. You just prefer to eat at home. And, of course, when you do go, you demand good service. You demand a delicious meal at a low price. And you also better have something for my kids. We expect when we go to a church restaurant to be waited on, to be pampered, to be served, to be maybe even entertained. But don't expect me to reciprocate in any way. I'm here for what I can get, not what I can give. And if something doesn't go my way, if anyone places any expectations on me that I don't like, or I don't get the service that I demand, I'm out of there and I'll go to another restaurant. That's the mindset of many people today. Beloved, the Bible knows nothing of that kind of Christian. And so I want to kindly and humbly but forthrightly challenge you to that end this morning. I want to remind you that in our study in Acts thus far, and we're, we're going to jump around. This is going to be kind of a, a, a bit of a Bible study this morning rather than being in one particular text. But in our study in Acts thus far, we've learned that those who confess Christ as Savior, whether they are Jew or Gentile, were added to the church. In Acts 2.41, we see those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. In verse 47 of Acts 2, we read that, And the Lord was adding to their number, the term translated ecclesia, from ekkaleo, which means to be called out. They were added to this ecclesia, to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. In other words, those early church brethren were keeping track of those that came into the church. And this was not just coming into the universal, invisible church of which all believers belong, but they were coming into a local church in Jerusalem. In Acts 5.14, we read, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Again, not just to the universal church, the invisible church, but also to the local church in Jerusalem. In Acts 11.21, we see again that they're keeping track of all those that come in. We read that a large number who believe turned to the Lord. And in verse 24, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Now we see something a little bit different. Not only are they being added to the church, but it says they're brought to the Lord. And what you've got to understand is when you're brought to the church, you're brought to the Lord. Or when you're brought to the Lord, you're brought to the church. It's synonymous. And the church here, again, is not some just universal church, but it's the idea of a local congregation, as we will see. The Bible knows nothing of one without the other, of coming to the Lord and not also coming to a local church and being a part of that. The New Testament repeatedly emphasizes the priority of being committed to a local assembly, as we will see. In fact, wherever Paul went, wherever the apostles went, They went and established churches, local congregations, and commanded believers to be committed to those congregations. We read, for example, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there were commanded to not forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some. By the way, the the term assembling there doesn't mean, like some people think, just showing up on Sunday mornings. It's the idea of you are to come together when the body meets together for the purpose of stimulating one another to love and good deeds. And that can include many things within the life of a church. You are to come together together. To encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are to come together. We're called to do that, to assemble together, to encourage one another. And encourage has the idea of instructing and exhorting and comforting and strengthening and so on. Now, beloved, I ask you, how can you possibly fulfill that command if you live in isolation as a Christian? If you're not committed to a local body. If you're not part of the life of the fellowship of the body. Beloved, the Bible makes it clear that local, the local church 
is the most precious assembly on earth since Christ purchased it with his own blood. That the church and its local expression is the place where we have an earthly expression of heavenly realities. When we look at the Bible, we see that the church is the realm of spiritual fellowship on earth. The church is the place where spiritual truth is proclaimed and protected. The local church is where true believers come and, and, and worship the Lord together. It's the place where spiritual leadership is developed and matured. It's the launching pad for world evangelism. It's the place where spiritual edification and growth occurs. It is where we hear the word preached and taught, where we're called to obedience It's where other believers carry out acts of love and service to one another. And the Bible even tells us that it is where God placed men to shepherd you by encouraging you, admonishing you, teaching you, and holding you accountable on God's behalf. So I want you to understand, first of all, that the local church is a visible expression of the universal, invisible church which is that glorious organism known as the body of Christ. Now, why wouldn't you want to be part of such a magnificent institution? Now, I ask you, what noble biblical reason could you possibly give me for not being committed to, faithful to, and accountable to a local fellowship? This morning, I want to give you seven reasons for church membership where we will learn that it is appropriate and biblical to formally and publicly commit ourselves to faithful and sacrificial service and even accountability to a local assembly. Let me give them to you again, as I just speak to you heart to heart here, kind of rambling through a few thoughts. And the frustrating thing here is that there's so much that can be said. I'm just going to hit the highlights of seven points, and I'm sure there are others. And at some level, these will overlap. But I trust that they will minister to you. Number one, the number one reason for committing ourselves to a local assembly and church membership is to distinguish believers from unbelievers. You see, church, a church membership process helps us do exactly that. It helps us determine who is saved, who's not, what you believe, what you don't believe, and so on. You must understand, beloved, that the church is not a gathering down at the park. It, it, it's not where people come together with no clearly defined purposes that require no restrictions and, you know, kind of anybody can come and do their thing. That is not the church. In fact, when we look at the Bible, we see that never are unbelievers added to the church, obviously. In fact, heretics are not allowed in the church. In Titus 3.10 and other passages, we're told to literally confront them and reject them. In fact, in Romans 16, verse 17, we see that no one who causes dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching of the apostles, are to be allowed in the church. We're to turn away from them. Moreover, no Christians living in blatant, unrepentant sin are to be allowed to continue to be a part of the church unless they repent. And if they don't, we are to expel them and treat them as an unbeliever, Matthew 18, as well as other passages. You see, membership helps us sift through these kinds of issues. We are the ones that have been called out. The church is the assembly of those whom God has sovereignly called out. Beloved, this is the the assembly of the redeemed. This is where the saved have come together to worship and to grow and to minister to one another. And you must understand that we as believers are the church. You don't want to necessarily think of it like we often will say, well, I go to Calvary Bible Church or I belong to Calvary Bible Church. Well, we understand what you're saying there, but ultimately what you must understand is you are Calvary Bible Church. 
Can you imagine allowing unbelievers to have a voice or a vote in the church? Can you imagine if there was no process whereby you sift through that and you just let anybody kind of show up and begin to get involved? Can you imagine allowing them having influence and leadership in a church? Well, it would be catastrophic. There are many examples in the New Testament epistles that address this issue of what the church is really all about with respect to being for the saved. Let me give you just a few, and this is some examples from the epistles. And again, may I remind you that whenever the apostles went to a local area, they established a local church, and then later on we see that they write these churches' letters and so on. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth. There's the specific local assembly. To those who have been sanctified in Christ, Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place, in other words, all the other local assemblies as well, call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. I'm reminded there of 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out. That's who we are. He's called us out. As Peter says, he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, again, in 2 Corinthians 1, he says to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. In other words, to that specific church at Corinth and all these other churches, local churches in multiple regions. In Galatians 1, 2, Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. Again, multiple churches here. And he goes on to define these local assemblies beginning in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. In Ephesians 1, the end of verse 1, he says, To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Obviously, the church is for the redeemed, is for people that are saved. Philippians 1, to all the saints, in verse 1, in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Paul says. So here we have not only a specific local church, but we have the indication that there is organization, there is leadership, there is service, there are purposes here, there are objectives of this church. It's not some random group of mavericks that get together occasionally for no specific reason, with no precise practical requirements and expectations. In First Thessalonians 1, Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses two and following, he gives us a sense of what the church is all about. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind. Now, catch this, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that describe you? Are you a part of this church or some church where you could be praised for your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see letters going out to seven local churches. That's the way truth was disseminated in those days. They couldn't send an email or pick up the phone. They wrote letters and they carried them around. So again, as we see, all believers are organized under the banner of the cross. The church is for believers. And as I indicated earlier from Acts, when we're added to the Lord, we're added to the church and vice versa. And so believers are called to live in community with one another in local churches. The local church is a subset of the universal invisible church. There's no such thing ever in the New Testament of a believer living separately from that type of commitment, of not being actively involved, as we will see. Now, it's common sense, beloved, that every church must make sure that those who are part of the local assembly and therefore participate in the members are truly, or in the ministries are truly saved. Now, I ask you, would you want to be a part of a church that did not have that kind of a screening process? 
I wouldn't. In fact, this was so important in the early church that we read about letters of commendation that were required from moving when moving from one place to another. We read about that, for example, in 2 Corinthians 3 with the Apostle Paul. In fact, in Romans 16, 1, Paul says, I commend to you, in other words, to the local church there in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, literally a deaconess, a woman servant. I commend her to you, who is a servant of the church which is at Sencria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Well, obviously, this presupposes a membership screening accountability kind of process. By the way, I always tell people that if you're moving someplace, and I know we have this from time to time here at this church, before you even say yes to a new job offer, make sure, beloved, there is a good, solid church in that area. And the number one litmus test of a good, solid church is simply this. How is the word of God handled in that pulpit? That is the fulcrum that raises everything else. And if you can't find that, then you need to find a job somewhere else. That's how important it is. And I think you're going to see this more as we go on here this morning. Because, beloved, you must understand that unless you have a church that rightly divides the word of God and preaches it with clarity and boldness, you simply will not grow. And you simply will not have biblical discernment. And therefore, you will forfeit blessing in your life. What good is it to have a wonderful, well-paying job and a beautiful home and sacrifice everything else spiritually? How foolish. A second reason why church membership and active involvement is so important, and that is to facilitate the orderly administration of the church. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40, we read, let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. Obviously, this requires structure. It requires organization, leadership, servants, dedication, and so on. How silly it is to say, hey, you know, if, if you love Jesus, just feel free to come eat at our religious restaurant whenever you want to. But don't feel any obligation to help serve. You know, we'll, we'll serve you, just a handful of us here. We'll do all of that for you. Total anonymity, that's our policy. No expectations, no commitment, no anything. Just come be a part of whatever we decide to do on a given day. Beloved, that's not the church. That's ridiculous. It's so sad. People that go to those kinds of churches, unfortunately, are ultimately banished to a life of spiritual infancy. You know, the shepherding analogy is so powerful in the New Testament. And as some of you know, I've spent a lot of my life riding quarter horses, chasing cows. So I know a lot about cowboying. But in the context of that, I've learned a little bit about sheep and shepherds. And one thing for certain is that a shepherd knows nothing about non-committed sheep in his flock. He knows nothing about that. I mean, it's not like he's got sheep that just kind of show up every now and then. And he kind of takes care of them. He maybe feeds them or whatever. But then they just kind of wander off and they go to some other flock. That, that's not how it works. I mean, dear friends, what kind of sheep is able to live on its own? Sheep are notoriously helpless and vulnerable. And that includes all of us. That's why we need each other. That's why you see sheep living within the flock. They can't live apart from the flock. They cannot survive apart from the flock. Moreover, they cannot survive apart from a shepherd. Now, what makes you think you could do anything different? What type of sheep says, you know what, I'll lead myself. I can protect myself. I hate to be around other sheep. I prefer to live in isolation. What type of sheep says, I resent being shepherded. In fact, I know more than the shepherd. What type of sheep says, I want to be the shepherd? Well, the only type of sheep that says those kinds of things, if you understand the imagery here, 
would be a non-Christian. There is not one example, beloved, in the New Testament of a Christian living in isolation apart from a local assembly. Because a Christian cannot survive apart from the church. Oh, you, you, you can survive in the sense that you just kind of, kind of trudge through life. But think of all that you will forfeit. Those who claim to be Christians yet want nothing to do with a biblical, God-honoring local church deceive themselves. Now, I, I ask you, this is the body of Christ. I ask you, how can you possibly tell me with a straight face that, oh, yes, I am a part of the body of Christ, but I don't want to have anything to do with the body of Christ? That makes no sense to me. Now, back to the orderly administration issue. It should be no surprise that the early church kept track of how many were added to the church. They knew their names. They knew the numbers of the people. In fact, we read in Acts 6 that this is what triggered the need to choose seven men to, to facilitate the orderly distribution of benevolence. There we have the first indication of a church staff. And without a doubt, they were paid church staff to help do this. And, beloved, all through the New Testament epistles, we see instructions to the church, to you, to me, within the body, to be organized, to be committed, to be faithful, to be sacrificial for the purpose of an orderly administration. And certainly all of this predisposes that people are going to commit themselves to a local body. Again, when you look at what the apostles did in establishing churches, you see over and over again that in their epistles they give detailed instructions to those local bodies, whether in Corinth or Philippi or Thessalonica or wherever, they gave them detailed instructions about how to select leaders, about things like um, uh, discipline and finances and, and benevolence and marriage and divorce and how to have order in the church and how to conduct meetings in the church and missions and philosophy of ministry and all of those things. First Timothy three, even in the pastoral epistles, we read about the qualifications for elders and deacons and deaconesses. And in chapter five, we have great detail about various kinds of church members, how to deal with older men, younger men, older women, younger women, widows with children, widows without children, grandchildren. We read about how to deal with young widows with varying levels of spiritual maturity. You have all of these incredible detailed pieces of information for an organized group of people. How to compensate elders, how to discipline them even. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, we have great detail on how even converted slaves of that day were to be a part of the church and how they should respond to their masters. We have, even in that chapter, detailed instructions on how to deal with heretics and even instructions on the rich and what they need to do with respect to their stewardship and so on. Now, beloved, think about this. In the Bible, we see that the church is likened to a, a, a body. It's likened to a family. It's likened to a royal priesthood, a nation, an army. Now, I ask you, how can any of those institutions operate apart from organized leadership and apart from people being committed? I would ask you to ask yourself. This question, would I really want to be a part of a church where all of the people in that church shared the same level of commitment as me? What about it? Those of you who never give financially to the church, who never pray, who never serve, who only show up occasionally. So why does God expect me to be an active member of a local church? whereby I formally and publicly commit myself to that fellowship. Number one, to distinguish believers from unbelievers. Number two, to facilitate the orderly administration of the church. And number three, to discover, develop, and use your spiritual gifts. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, you have a list of spiritual gifts, which are literally divine enablements that God has given us. And we read earlier in Ephesians 4 a bit about that. We all have 
varying kinds of gifts that God has given us. They're like the primary colors on an artist's palette that are given in Scripture where they can be blended with with other colors and come up with a vast array of giftedness where we all use those gifts, not for our own benefit, but you must understand biblically that the gifts that God has given you are not for you, but for the rest of the body. First Corinthians twelve seven, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. In other words, the gifts that God has given you, not for your benefit, but for our benefit, for the rest of the body. To put the spirit of God on display, if you will, as we minister to others in the body. So, in other words, we need you. We need each other. Now, I ask you, how do you expect to discover and develop and use your spiritual gifts if you're not faithfully committed to a local church? Those of you who just float in and out, who are just kind of occasional spectators, who just kind of come and enjoy whatever meal you want at the restaurant and then leave, I I would humbly ask you, and I want to ask this forthrightly, but I want you to hear the love in my heart for you. And I want to ask you this in humility and in kindness. What makes you so special? Ask yourself. Do you really believe that the gifts that God has given you, you, you don't have any responsibility here to use those to put the Spirit of God on display with the rest of the body, to minister to other people? Do you think they're really for you? Do you really believe that? I I, I want to humbly ask you, do you think that God really doesn't need you, doesn't want you to contribute to the body for his glory? Do, Do you really think he buys your excuse for being so pathetically involved in the church? I should say uninvolved, unaccountable, unteachable and unfaithful. Now, beloved, I, I mean, you have to answer to the Lord for this. But I want you to hear me. I hope and I pray that your excuse is one that the Lord agrees with. Because if it's not, you will be chastened if you're a believer. You will be. And you will forfeit blessing in your life. And you will rob me and the rest of the people of the gifts that God has given you. So sad to see wasted opportunity. To see Christians forfeit earthly blessing and heavenly reward. I want you to hear this. You have a responsibility. Again, back to Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another. Stimulate here is the idea of inciting one another. This is your command now. This isn't just me or a few leaders in the church. This is what God is telling you. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to what? To love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling. Forsaking the original language means to leave someone in a lurch. And lots of times I have to confess that as a pastor, I feel I'm being left in the lurch. Because some of you just don't show up. And you don't do anything. And the rest of us feel like we're being left in a lurch. He says, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Again, that's not just Sunday morning. That's when we come together. For what purpose? Well, to encourage one another. He says, this is the habit of of some. But don't forsake the assembling together is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. In other words, we come together, we assemble together in various ways, sometimes in homes, sometimes in this building, sometimes in, in other places. But we have a purpose to encourage one another. The idea of of comforting, admonishing, warning, instructing, strengthening, and so on. And he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, here is a sense of divine urgency, don't you see? The Lord is coming. Don't you realize that? Even more as we see... The day drawing near. Well, this requires dedicated believers to use their spiritual gifts within the local church. And beloved, this begins with showing up and signing up. Making a commitment. And I call you to that end. For your own good. and For the glory of God. A fourth reason why we should make this kind of commitment. And that is to enjoy the benefits of divine shepherding. 
We read earlier in Ephesians 4 that God has given the church pastor teachers, literally teaching shepherds. We have been given to the church to nurture, to supervise, to protect the flock that's been entrusted to us and so on. And may I remind you that upon completion of the New Testament canon, God replaced apostles and New Testament prophets with evangelists and teaching shepherds or pastor teachers. The evangelists, by the way, you need to understand, were missionaries. Think of missionaries. He gave the church missionaries and he gave the church teaching shepherds. Well, why did he do that? Well, in verse 12, we read for the equipping of the saints. The word equipping, katartizo um, in the original language, it was uh, sometimes used as a surgical term to describe what a physician would do in setting a bone. When you have a broken arm, what must happen? Well, it might be painful, but you need to have a doctor set that bone so that it grows correctly. So that it heals properly. The term is also used for the mending of nets and so on. It's the idea of putting things in order, setting things in proper order. Why did he give pastor teachers, teaching shepherds? Why do you have that? Well, for the purpose of the equipping or the putting into order of the saints. Why? Now, catch this for the work of service. For the work of service. That's what you're called to do, not just me or the elders or the deacons or the deaconesses or the Sunday school. All of us. For the work of service. We weren't called to equip you so that you could somehow live in isolation or go do your own thing or go, you know, start up your own church someplace or whatever. The Bible knows nothing about that. It says for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now, here he goes on. Here's your responsibility. Each and every one of you don't run from it. It's got your name written on it. Here's what he says to the building up of the body of Christ. Beloved, is that the passion of your heart? I want to be involved in this church so that I can do the work of the service to help build up other people in the body of Christ until he says we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's a reference to doctrinal, not uh, an, an objective unity, not some subjective kumbaya type of unity. Doctrinal unity. Are you a part of that to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on to say, as a result, in other words, when we're all doing this, when the when the teaching shepherd is helping instruct you and holding you accountable and equipping you and you're now setting the bone properly in your life and in the lives of others. And we're all growing together. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now, beloved, please hear this. The assumption here is that this will happen in the absence of God appointed teaching shepherds, as well as in the absence of dedicated saints. If you don't have a teaching shepherd and you don't have dedicated saints, in fact, if you have even one without the other, you're going to have serious problems. You know what the result is going to be? A lack of discernment. People are going to be tricked by all of the silly stuff that's out there. And in verse 15, he says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, now hear this, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. That's you. You're all a joint. We're all part of this body. Being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And beloved, I would submit to you that this church and other churches are weakened when we do not not have other individual parts helping the rest of the body build itself up in love. Ask yourself, how long would you be able to get around if suddenly your Achilles tendon was gone? Or some other body part. You see, being an active, committed member is crucial here. And by doing so, you enjoy the benefits of divine shepherding. That is God's plan 
And likewise, we all come together and we grow in Christ and experience his blessing. And shepherding is done primarily through the proclamation of the word and holding people accountable to it. First Peter five, two says that calls us as shepherds. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, exercising oversight. It's a a term that means to oversee or to to manage, uh, to watch over, to supervise. As a shepherd, I'm to be involved. I'm to know my sheep and the other elders are as well. We're to live with with all of you. I ask you, how are we to be committed to that end if you never show up, if you're not a part of the body? I was thinking through this this particular concept this week, and I thought again of my job description as a pastor. And let me just give you some of the commands that God has placed upon me as your pastor so that maybe you can better understand your role in part of the body here. And these are just uh, just the commands that he has given with respect to me shepherding you as a pastor. And there's many others that I'm going to leave out with respect of what I need to do with my own personal life. But here's what I'm called to do. Correct false teaching and false doctrine and call the people to a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is, again, out of just First and Second Timothy. I'm to call women in the church to be an example of faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint and to call them to fulfill their God-given role of submission and to raise up godly children. I am to wisely and carefully select spiritual leaders for the church on the basis of giftedness, godliness, and virtue. I am called to boldly preach and teach you the word and exhort you to godliness. I am called to faithfully read, explain, and apply the scriptures publicly. I am called to graciously and gently confront your sin, to teach and preach principles of true godliness, helping you to discern between true godliness and hypocrisy. I am called to instruct the rich to do good and be generous. I am called to reproduce myself in godly men. I am called to lead you with authority, to interpret the scripture for you accurately, to face dangerous times with a deep knowledge of the word of God, and to preach the word in season and out, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with great patience and instruction. Now I ask you, beloved, and I have to give an account for this, how can I possibly faithfully shepherd you if you refuse to be shepherded? If you don't show up, if you don't get involved... You know, it grieves my heart. I was thinking about this. I have never heard some of you pray ever. Some of you, I I don't really know what you believe on certain things, and I I wish I could. And I know it's not humanly possible to know everything, but my, I I, I just wish I knew you better. And you know what? A lot of you don't even know each other. That's sad. There's something wrong with the body that doesn't know It's individual parts. This is why it's so crucial that you become an active, faithful, committed member of a church. Well, you know, I'm accountable to God. I'm not accountable to you. I've heard that one before. And um, I've got the Holy Spirit to teach me I don't need a pastor. Beloved, those types of statements betray both ignorance as well as arrogance. Yes, every Christian is under God's authority. I understand that. And in order to submit to God's authority, I want you to think about this. In order for you to submit to God's authority, you've got to know what he requires. As as Jesus said, how can you call me Lord and, and, and do not do what I what I ask you to do, what I say? Now, you must understand that God's plan is for you to be placed under the authority of the shepherds of your church. That's God's plan under the overseers, the elders of the church. And we become the ones that disseminate to you what God commands and hold you hold you accountable to it. Now, that's not to say that you don't study and learn and on your own that the spirit of God doesn't do wonderful things in your own life. Uh, Not at all. But ultimately, this is God's plan and purpose in the church. Well, I I don't like that. Well, then you need to talk to God. I, I didn't come up with it. That's his plan. I don't like it, and I'm going to go to another church. You know, if that's your attitude, you probably should, because you're going to be real uncomfortable here. Well, I'm I'm going to start up my own church, be my own pastor. 
Well, it's your funeral. That's up to you. Hebrews 13:17. Here's what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Beloved, how can we possibly fulfill this duty if you are, first of all, unwilling to be accountable to us? But secondly, you're not even committed to the rest of the flock. It's like herding cats. I want you to listen very carefully. Arrogant, independent, maverick Christians are out of fellowship with God. They are absolutely useless to the church. And they will inevitably fall into deeper and deeper doctrinal and spiritual ruin. If that's you, I would just humbly call you back into fellowship. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian that lives somewhere out there on its own. A Christian that refuses to be a part of the body life of the church. Let me offer you a fifth reason as time begins to slip away from us. A fifth reason why God expects us to be a member, an active member of a local church where we, again, formally and publicly commit ourselves to that local fellowship. Number five, to exalt Christ in corporate worship. To exalt Christ in corporate worship. You know, every believer should long to come together in corporate worship as we've done here this morning. Wasn't it rich today to, to hear the music and to sing those songs and, and because we've... We've had our private worship all week long where we've walked with the Lord and and we've spent time with him and we've prayed and we've served and and we've read his word and he's ministered to us. And now it's like the doxology of our heart just overflows and it's like we cannot wait to come together with the rest of the saints corporately and praise our God. Paul gave Timothy special instructions about the public meetings of the church. He said in first Timothy four thirteen. Until I come, give attention to, and here it is, the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. And I would submit to you that you're hearing all three of those things here today. And hopefully every Sunday. And here we see the primary emphasis in public worship. It includes three things. Hearing the Word, being called to obedience and action through exhortation and teaching. And beloved, it is only in the context of corporate worship in a local church that these things can effectively take place. In Acts 2.42, we read that the early church met together and it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And again, all through the Scripture and the New Testament, we read how the believers assembled themselves together, especially on the first day of the week. And primarily it was for the public reading, preaching, and teaching of the Word. And, and that's always the pinnacle of worship. It was for praising God in song, petitioning God in prayer, for worshiping in the giving of their offerings, and for commemorating the Lord's death through the breaking of bread, and for the purpose of ministering to one another. And beloved, all this requires organization, it requires faithful, sacrificial commitment, dedication, participation, and all of this is part and parcel of church membership. A sixth reason why we should become a member of a church is to be a corporate witness in evangelism. You see, faithful members of a church will not only love to meet together in corporate worship, but they will love to invite unbelievers with them, especially to corporate worship. And I hope more and more of you will do that. Beloved, never underestimate the power of corporate witness when we come together as a family and love one another. You must understand that unbelievers know nothing of genuine self-sacrificing love among friends. And many of them don't even have it among families. And so... When they come and they witness it firsthand, oh my, what a testimony it is. What a tremendous testimony to the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? 
if you love one another. And that's what people will see in the life of a church that is vibrant and alive. You see, our private witness is magnified in our public testimony of worship. And don't underestimate the power of of corporate worship when people come and they see almost like a, a militant army that is marching to the banner of the cross. It's an amazing thing. Our private witness magnifies our public testimony of worship. There's a fascinating text I want to share with you. First Corinthians 14, verse 24. Paul says to the church there, if all prophesy, and in other words, if, if everybody in the church is publicly proclaiming in word and deed the, the word of God, if all prophesy, now catch this, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, guess what happens? It says he is convicted by all He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Oh, beloved, the power of corporate witness. Never underestimate it. And I ask you, is it more wonderful to have a handful of people corporately witnessing and glorifying God or to have this place packed out? You see, we need all of you for that. In the intro letter on our website, I say this and I quote, Ministry methods derived from the desires of those who know nothing of Christ and designed to make them feel comfortable in their foolishness are wholly unacceptable to us. We would never want someone deceived by the world they love to come into one of our services and say, Wow, I feel right at home here. Instead, our passionate desire would be for them to say, wow, I have never witnessed that kind of worship. Biblically, our responsibility is to provide a compassionate atmosphere where hearts will either be divinely softened or hardened by the bold proclamation of the glorious gospel of Christ. End quote. So why does God expect me to be a member of a church and to be? To be actively involved in it. One, to distinguish believers from unbelievers. Two, to facilitate the orderly administration of a church. Three, to discover, develop, and use your spiritual gifts. Four, to enjoy the benefits of divine shepherding. Five, to exalt Christ in public worship. Six, to be a corporate witness in evangelism. And finally, number seven, to enjoy the blessings of fellowship. I cannot imagine life Without my biological family. But beloved likewise. I could not imagine my life apart from my church family. And for some of you. You feel more love in your church family. Than you do in your biological family. You see. This is where we come together. And iron sharpens iron. Where I benefit from your gifts. And you from mine. And all of us from one another. Beloved, the church is where believers come together and enjoy something that the world knows nothing about. Fellowship. Koinonia in the original language. It literally means partnership. It is the mutual sharing of common life and ministry. The world knows nothing about that. You see, the church is far more than some social club where we come together for social interaction. In Philippians 1.27, Paul says we are called to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Catch this, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Are you striving with the rest of us? Consider all the one another's in the Bible. We're not going to go through all of them. Let me give you but but a few. These commands to each and every one of us. We are to love one another, encourage, admonish, be subject, pray, forgive, show hospitality to one another. We are to serve one another, be kind to one another, comfort one another, bear one another's burdens of sin, edify, exhort, show compassion, and so on. In fact, we love each other so much that if we see one of our own living in unrepentant sin, what do we do? We go after them and call them back to repentance. And if they repent, we have won our brother. That's how much we love. That's Matthew 18. And if they don't listen, we eventually tell it to the church. Why? So that the whole church will go after them. That's how much we love them. That's what fellowship is all about. 
It's more than coming together and having some coffee and donuts. All these one another's require dedicated, committed, faithful service inherent in church membership so that we can all enjoy those blessings. Beloved, in closing, it grieves me as a pastor to see certain ministries, even in this church, suffer because for whatever reason, some of you just aren't committed. Some of you are members and you're not committed. I think of our music ministry. and We're beginning to see that revitalized. We, we love to see that. We need more help. You know, what, what are your priorities in life? We meet one Sunday night out of the month and half of you will not show up. What's that all about? I, I don't understand that. Now, maybe you've got a good excuse and I'm sure some of you do. But, beloved, examine your heart. Is your excuse one that the Lord would validate? Sunday night, when we don't meet together, we have Bible studies, we have fellowship groups. I guess a lot of you think that that's not important. That, that we don't need your gift in there. We have Sunday school, SIT, Wednesday night prayer meeting, special seasons of prayer. Some of you never show up. I don't understand that. Some of you never give, I've been told. That, that really concerns me. Wait, 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 do you think the stewardship responsibilities that God has given the saints does not apply to you? Is that what you think? You would think, given the mercies of God, that we would all be deliriously happy to be committed to these ends. And beloved, if that's not the case, there is something wrong with your spiritual life. And I call you to repentance on that. So I would challenge you this day to examine your heart. Beloved, the Lord has purchased you with his very blood. Don't you understand? And this local body is a visible expression of the invisible universal church, the body of Christ the only institution that God Himself has promised to build and to bless. Why would you not want to be intimately, actively involved in such a glorious institution? Beloved, you will never learn to live a life without compromise. You will never grow spiritually. You will never learn the Bible well enough to be discerning. You will forfeit blessing in your life and perhaps even place yourself in the pathway of divine chastening unless you get serious about being actively involved in a local church. If not this one, go find one that you can be involved in. So I call you to that end. And those of you that are members, and yet you see what the Bible really calls you to, boy, the standard's high, isn't it? By the way, if you, if you feel convicted, you, 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 you ought to know what I felt like all week as I was thinking this through. This convicts my heart, too. None of us are without blame here. I fear that the lash strikes each of our backs. So I would call you to examine your heart. And in a very practical way, I want you to invite you, if you're not a member of the church, we have... This morning, uh, some membership packets out here in the foyer. There's membership applications. You would, each of you would need to get one of those. You would need to fill that out. Pray about it first. You know, it's an important decision. But pray about it. Take one of those membership applications. You will need one per person. There is also a packet. Then you will see it's got our doctrinal statement and the bylaws. If you're really bored sometimes and, and you want something really exciting to read, you could read the bylaws. But they're there. And uh, but we would encourage you to to get those to take them home, to think that through and to make a decision. OK, so we want to make that available to you and you can just pick those up out of the foyer. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, thank you for these very practical truths that you've set forth in your word. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to each and every heart. Lord, we all need to get more more concerned about our own level of commitment and serving you.
Because, Lord, we do love you and we want your blessing on our life. So I pray that you will minister to each and every one of us and bring conviction where necessary and cause us to get absolutely serious about our own spiritual condition and our own dedication to the church that you've called us to. I ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.